Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fan Fiction Tapes. This is episode 16, Genre and World Building. I am the producer, Ian, and also our host this week. And our co-host is... Hi, it's Dylan. Yes, I, I bet you thought it was just Maya, but no, this time it's me who's here. <laughs> yeah, we don't know where Maya is. Um... We tried to get in contact, and we just got an auto-reply saying uh, that uh, she could tell us, but then she'd have to kill us. So I think she's off doing government work again. So we wanted to talk about how certain conventions of genre uh, affect the way that uh, you build world for your uh, work. If you look at there, there are many things that stories have in common, um, and we've talked about that on the show already. Um, every, every story has a protagonist. Every story has an antagonist. Um, every story has a setting that it's in, and sometimes that setting can be just taken to be the real world. Um, this is often the case in um, dramatic works or... Uh, a lot of aspects of the horror genre are just real life, but scarier. Um, <laughs> slasher movies often involve, uh, may involve some supernatural elements, but then there's things like the Saw franchise where it's just a unhinged person. Um, but then you have stories where things are less real um lord of the rings has a completely alternate world built out uh star wars has a completely alternate world built out um so how does genre impact how much world building that you have to do oh that is a fine, fine question. Uh, and obviously, like, we presented different examples here, and they're all sorts, and when you get down to it, it's really about... There's also a mixture of genres and what you can do with that, and obviously, <laughs> they are better combinations but together than others, you know? Like, I don't know... Like, you get stuff like crime fantasy sometimes, which is interesting. You know, uh, a classic one is, what well, romance goes with nearly everything. <laughs> we get interesting things like that, don't we? And by it's understanding the broad strokes of the genre, the tropes within that genre, what goes well with it, what is interesting. And I think that's what, when we talk about genre, we look about the general feel, the ideas, the concepts that's what we talk about because a lot of like when i go for like how i want to feel a story uh one i'm currently writing is sort of young person which is more a target audience which is a little different from genre but uh it's like a war-based post post uh fantasy so it's like all the fantasy stuff happened in the past, and we're, like, past that. <laughs> and that's a really 
difficult one to write, but I'm enjoying my experimentation with it. Uh, but yeah, that's how... And when you go into world building, then, you have to think, like... Say now you want to go with... Give me an example, and Give me and I'll try to give you, like, a sort of world building rules for a genre. Uh, let's start with something a little simple. One that doesn't involve a whole lot of extra changes. Um... All right, so this is uh, a pretty popular genre nowadays. Um, CSI type stuff, detective. So, CSI detective. Yeah. Yeah. So what? I think the the best way to write those is you create the the little will they interact with. You know, when you think about stuff, you know, sort of not just exclusively detective, but the stuff around it. I'm talking like Law and Order. You know precincts so you make up like courts you make up that's your world is like courthouses uh precincts uh like detective places that's what you go for there uh, and crime scenes obviously those are mm-hmm. the important stuff and then you build up the world like various criminals various uh you know bureaucrats or politicians police forces civil services, lawyers, like, that's how you build that world. Yeah, and, and I think... the elements you focus in on. I think depending on on uh, how you want to do it, you can um, either do a lot of inventing out of whole cloth, or you can just do research and set it somewhere that is adjacent to reality and rely on that for verisimilitude. Yeah, look at, like, pick, you know, like, a state, you know, depending on your story. Do you want to be in the big city? Do you want to be in a small town, medium-sized city? What are you, like, are you going to do in America? Or are you going to do it in, like, Europe? Because that also presents a very different way of how you'll have to world-build based on the setting. Are you doing a 1950s? Like, say you say, okay, I'll pick America. Are you doing a modern America? Are you doing it in a 1950s America? And you've got to think of how people at that time, then, in that profession, in that those environments would behave. And that's where world building comes in, when you think, okay, we're going for CSI in the 1990s. What were the 90s like? What were police in the 90s like? What were detectives in the 90s doing? How was law? What was different? And that's how you will build that sort of example. Is, And it all comes down to a lot of research, isn't it? Like, you have to know or, like, look at things and also look at similar works. Like, if you were going into that, I mean, how long has Law & Order been on the on the TV? Watch 10 episodes oh. of that, you'll probably get an idea. Yeah. <laughs> From whatever time period you want to refer to. <laughs> On, on the subject of time periods, um, so I would expect that there would be a, a lot of overlap between the sort of people who would be interested in our podcast and the sort of people who follow um, overly sarcastic productions on YouTube. Um, OSP Red recently posted a trope talk that um, really brings into focus exactly how invisible uh, normalcy is on account of phones Mm -hmm. so 
there are a lot of tropes and storytelling conventions that uh, are very much based on characters not being able to communicate. Because for a large portion of human history, the only way to communicate with another person in real time is if you are standing within speaking distance of each other. As soon as someone is out of the room, uh, communication is cut off. But within the last 10, 20 years, um, communication devices have become so ubiquitous. Uh, you can reach someone on a phone from a computer or on a phone from a tablet pretty much any time. We live now in an era where communication is the norm. And you have to realize blind spots like that when you're writing uh, so that you can actually make, avoid plot holes. Um, and it's like, what are some other... If if you're writing in a realistic setting, what are some other things that you think are normal that would bias your story in some way? Yeah, and we also, with the advancement of technology, especially in sort of the, the mystery genre, especially in crime mystery, if, you know, to write a smart, like, murderer in, like, the 30s or 40s is a lot easier than writing a smart villain in, you know, modern day. Exactly. <laughs> because, you know, you have to account for various cameras, various te technological advancements, uh, how forensics is done now compared to back then and how advanced. Yeah. And so when you look at it all together... You know, when you want to write that nowadays, you've got to be really good. And that's why I think we, we've we seen a shift away from that, really, because it becomes a lot harder for a modern audience to believe a murder mystery. That's why we still talk about old mysteries a lot in terms of that. That's what's popular, if you look at them. Because, guess what, that not many murder mysteries... Uh, around now compared to back then yeah and in fact in the in the 30s there's so much that we have today that we didn't back then not just in technology but like in in social systems in in the 30s you could literally just pack a bag leave town and start a new life there was no social security number there was no uh credit score following you credit scores i think are younger than me or about the same age. Credit scores didn't exist until like 1988 or 1989. Mm -hmm. uh, you could, and many people did, just leave the country and go to another country and pretend to be like a nobleman. There's, there's so many con artists from the early 20th century and late 19th century who came over to the United States from England and pretended to be baron whatever. Yeah, uh, there was recently uh, a show on the BBC and it was about uh, an MP, a member of the British Parliament, who 
I think it was in the 70s, tried to fake his own death. And on the sounds of it, it's like, well, obviously that wouldn't, I mean, he got caught back then. But even in modern day, like, you would never think to do that. As someone, an elected official attempting to fake their death by, like, swimming out to sea and pretending to drown. On the subject of elected officials faking things, do you remember from earlier this year the uh, um, the representative from New York? What was his name? Uh, George Santos. George Santos. Yeah, he tried to just completely lie about his background, and well, he's still in office because technically none of that can get you kicked out if the party doesn't want you to be kicked out, like. <laughs> He's not getting away with it. It took weeks for his entire history to be exposed. But the funny thing about him as well, we're going a bit off topic, but it's, it's the modern yeah. standard of he ran in 2019 saying like similar stuff and he failed to get elected then. And then a few years later, he gets elected anyway because, you know, it's not until someone is in power sometimes like you think about how many how many representatives there are you know in congress how many even though in the modern day we still don't get them until we see them or they get some sort of notoriety a lot of them you know um so with that all considered it's like if if you think about like a, a well, an example I can give you is Elizabeth Warren also claimed for a long time when she started her political career that she had native ancestry. Yeah. And obviously at the, yeah. at the time that never got picked up when she was looking to become the Democratic representative uh, for the, the presidential candidate. Obviously, then that came out like that was a lie, but she got away with it for so long, <laughs> you know. And that's something of the time, I guess. Or just, like, as soon as you... You also got to think, as soon as something's in people's minds, or you are in people's minds, everything you, you say is said with such scrutiny because people are looking to take you down in a political sense. If you ever write a political story, you know, or yeah. anything with, like, political subtext, if you're going to write something like The Boys, you know, you'll have to have that sort of mindset of, Anything a character says out loud, or even just to anyone, you know, whistleblowers, anything, stuff in modern politics you think about, anything that that character says could be recorded, and people scrutinize the heck out of it. <laughs> so if we're talking about a political genre, which is stuff I dip my toes into, uh, though usually I don't go with uh, modern political, but I'm dipping my toes in, uh... How about we talk about more certain genres? Have you got anything for me? And Okay, so we've been talking a bit here about genres that generally have a very uh, high level of realism to them. Um, let's get... Let's, let's step uh, a little more fantastical. Um, now, I know that you're not... Dylan, you're not particularly familiar with urban fantasy. My urban but... fantasy goes as far as, like, Stephen King's It. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So this is where we start getting into genres that have realistic elements, but also have significant fantastical elements. Um, at the light end, you have uh, supernatural slashers and horror films um, like Stephen King's It, like uh, The Shining, um, which is also technically another yes. Stephen King, um, like A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and then on the heavier end, you have things like uh, The Dresden Files, which is set in Chicago, but the universe is one where, you know, all myths are true to some extent, and magic is real, but it's a side of the world that's hidden. Um, and I suppose also Harry Potter falls into that uh, type of urban fantasy as well, because you have, again, it's set in the modern world, but there's actual magic that's just hidden from the mundane side of things. Mm -hmm. um, so what what sort of tropes and conventions of writing are typical for stories like that? Well, I think when we think about it, usually the protagonist, I feel like whenever we talk about this, is one of two characters. Either it's the Harry Potter, where it's someone being introduced to this new world and learning all the quirks and weirdness and everything and how different it is from the life they knew before or the life they didn't know this one would exist. The hero's or journey you, type of protagonist. Yeah. Or you have sort of... You don't usually get it, but it's typically like an older person who's very experienced. It's usually from the one side, and at one point they might have been that character. But it's a bit more, just treats it like a normal scene now. It's, you know... And uh, that would be that would be your Dresden. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I have no experience with those, but that's the sort of vibe I get. But that those are the sort of characters you get, you know? It's like, they don't treat every encounter with someone as like a magical thing it's the normal stuff now you know the the office worker who works at the newspaper place for the giant demon you know he doesn't have to go oh my boss is a giant demon it's just like ah my boss you know he's a pain in the neck he, he's not happy with the story i gave him because that's it it's that's urban fan fantasy it's looking at mundane and going okay Let's add some weird fantasy elements. And usually the fantasy elements slip through in more plot ways than the characters sometimes, you know? Uh, have you watched Dimension 20? I haven't ever sat down to watch one of those full, one of their full sessions, but I've seen a lot of clips of Dimension 20. So, uh, they got sort of, a lot of the, they have like urban fantasy stuff. Uh, so I've watched the first two uh, full seasons, uh, which is Fantasy High, mm -hmm. which is not, but it's more of a fantasy where it's, it's a fantasy world, but it's in sort of a suburbia sort of thing. And there's people who go to high school and they're orcs and everything and dragons. It's like D&D, but modernized, you know. I think Whereas... my favorite my favorite bit from um, Fantasy High that I know about is uh, the the whole Baron from the Baronies 
bit. Mm-hmm. Um, don't recall that one. <laughs> that might um, be a season two one. I don't remember. <laughs> oh. Okay. But uh, my favorite bit is Golgug trying to find his dad. <laughs> In which uh, Golgug, the uh, half-orc barbarian, uh, thinks that many people are his dad, including at one point he considers that he might be his own dad. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it happens. Alright, so, uh, the other one I wanted to talk about is their second series, sort of, in Dimension 20, which is The Unsleeping City. It's okay. It's uh, based around New York, and how there's another borough in New York, uh, and it's one full of fantasy elements, and how you have to be awakened to the unsleeping city, uh, and how <laughs> essentially you have normal New York, and you have the unsleeping New York, full of, you know, D&D things like elementals, vampires, but it's all painted with the you know, New York thing. And, you know, of course, since this is made by Brennan Lee Mulligan, what what is the bad guy, Ian? Uh, capitalism? Yeah, it is capitalism. It, <laughs> it's, a, it's a corrupt sort of, you know, stockbroker <laughs> with a conglomerate who turns heaven and hell and the fae all against each other to t- <laughs> and use it and it's so inventive at how and you know I think Brennan is from New York or spent a lot of time there and uh, clearly he loves to describe it and everything and that's sort of like when you talk about the urban fantasy that's what I think about it's you know a bunch of people and they get pulled into the world, into this world that they might not have known about, or no. And there's various characters, and some of the players are like people who know this stuff, and and have been involved in it their entire lives, nearly. And then other people who are just coming into it new. So you get all those perspectives. And I think the Unsleeping City is definitely one of my favorite examples of how to do urban fantasy. Okay, neat. Uh, Ian, just note, uh, I found a portal during our little break, mm-hmm. and uh, I pulled a uh, Maya out of it. Oh, hi. Maya, you're back from... Something like that, yes? Ian, that's classified. Shit. Okay, we'll have to bleep that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Maya, you're just in time to talk about... Um, uh, how genre, uh, genre conventions affect urban fantasy works. Uh, I thought you might want to talk about uh, Dresden Files here. Yeah, that is absolutely something that I would want to talk about here. Almost as if this entire episode was designed to do that. Uh, so what's been mentioned so far as far as um, Dresden Files type of urban fantasy... Um, 
Dresden Files falls into the sort of category of it's not so much a hero's journey as some more that we have a protagonist who is already aware of and familiar with the the, um, the magical world, the magical yeah. side of the world, right? Right. So, one of the things that is kind of neat about the way Dresden Files is set up uh, and the way its genre impacts it is that usually Dresden knows more about the world than the reader does. And he can... The way it's it's set up, there's a series of... Series, I guess you could say, that... I noticed started becoming popular in the late 90s, early 2000s of this is some, and it probably started below this, but I noticed it in the time when I was growing up, where it's a like a recording or it's a journey journal, it's something being left behind intentionally for someone else. Another notable series like this uh, is Rick Riordan's books also do the same thing also urban fantasy the same way although in the case of the Dresden Files it's not always very clear why exactly this is being recorded it's just clear that it is I have some theories on that but oh yes I, I do as well but <laughs> That's... That's not the topic of today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, well, for one, that changes how you do exposition, uh, as we talked about last episode, because there is no character to whom... There's, there's no proper character to whom exposition is being done to. It's just being done to the reader. It's, you know, mentioned this is a detail you'll need to know. You know, this is what this is. Sometimes, especially in the later books, Dresden does receive this exposition because it's information he's not previously been aware of. But for the most part, he knows a lot of things. And it will just go, oh yeah, that's um, that's a demon and it's going to try and eat my face off if I'm not careful. Or he'll talk about the vampire courts, for example. That's one of the big ones where there's he will explain about them and talk about the differences and why they don't like it. I will say the uh, the the vampire courts. Um, sidetracking onto a slightly different tack here. Um, so one of the things about the the urban fantasy genre as a whole, as it relates to world building, is that it has this mix of you can create your own rules about the world for the fantasy part, but there's also um, the 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 urban part. Typically, is that it's set. There's a side of it that's set in the real world, so there's this yes. mix of making things up and doing your research. And in the case of Dresden Files, since it often runs on all myths are true. And there's this aspect of... There's usually a lot of research both ways. Yeah. There's a lot of folklore that goes into the the fantasy side of it. 
but then that also gives an opportunity for playing with the folklore a bit. And the fact that there are multiple different types of vampires is a nice twist on that. Yes. There are, I think, at least five mentioned. Although there's really... So, in the Justice Files, there's three main types of vampires. Black Court, Red Court, and White Court. Yeah. And there are mentioned other types, but they're implied to be very rare and not commonly seen in suburban Chicago. I remember there's mention of the Jade Court, which is regional to, like, Southeast Asia. Yes. (laughs) I, uh... I almost said uh, Shinzo, as in Shinzo Abe, it talks about them. No, the uh, former Japanese prime minister does not show up in the Dresden Files. (laughs) That would be wild. Somewhat similar name uh, to a character who does show up and does exposit about the Jade Court. But yeah, that's, that's actually kind of a good example, is Dresden knows about kind of the three more main vampire courts in his region, the ones that show up and make his life difficult, and has no idea about the existence of stuff that doesn't try and eat Chicagoans. And on a more metal level, that's also a way that um, Jim Butcher can play with the audience's expectations, because he mentions vampires, but the first vampires that play a major role in the story are Red Court which aren't what your average reader who knows Bram Stoker, Dracula, uh, Anne Rice, Interview with a Vampire-type vampires. The Red Court is not like those vampires entirely. They've still got I mean, the, the, the aversion to sunlight going on, and they and still drink the blood. blood. But other than those two points... Their origin and the way that they operate and their weaknesses, other than sunlight, are very different. Uh, And then it even further uh, subverts expectations with the white court, who don't drink blood at all. They often consume other bodily fluids, but that's incidental to what they actually feed on. (laughs) Which is emotions. Yes. Um, lust, pain, and fear are the big three for the different factions of the White Court. Right. The the only one of the three major factions that's actually like your typical folklore vampire are the Black Court. They're the only ones who are actually undead monsters who feed on others, uh, feed on blood, and raise their victims. And they're also the ones that have the typical weaknesses of sunlight and silver and garlic and all that. And further uh, playing with expectations, um, in the lore of the the Dresden universe, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula is deliberate wizard propaganda so that everybody knows how to kill black court vampires. Yes, that's actually something I wanted to bring up, because I think that's neat of something that ha- can happen as a consequence of the kind of s- setting and genre of urban fantasy, is you can take real-world publications and go, 
These were created with a purpose. There is a reason in universe for these to exist. Um, and in this case, as Ian mentioned, it's so everyone knows everyone and their mother knows how to kill a black court vampire. And that has actually caused the black court to become very, very diminished over the years. Very nearly extinct, except for like two major black court vampires, one of whom is Dracula himself. And the other would be Mavra, um, maybe? Mavra, yeah, that was her name. I was yes. trying to remember her. She's 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 an old and powerful black court vampire that keeps showing up to antagonize Harry. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that happens in Chicago. Poor Chicago. Do space operas happen in Chicago? Maybe. <laughs> I guess it depends on your space opera. Yeah, I don't know of any off the top of my head, but likely. Well, I suppose okay, so We've been kind of moving along this trend of going from uh, genres that require more research than actual world building. And I suppose this brings us along to like the far end of the scale where your world is mostly built from scratch and doesn't require so much um, real world input for verisimilitude. Uh, so let's let's talk about space operas. <laughs> Which is a pretty broad category. Yeah. Because um, as I recall, it can include things from Star Wars to The Expanse. I'm guessing that Star Wars is probably the first thing that most people are going to think of when you say the word space opera. The wildest thing yes. about Star Wars, though, is that it doesn't often have more space opera tropes. Which is weird to think about, right? Like, Star Wars can fall, like, it's just everything's on a big scale. <laughs> but most of it is, like, just fantasy stuff. <laughs> there, There is a lot that is drawn from um, the fantasy tropes for space opera in general. Um, Star Wars does, does a lot of fantasy, does a lot more fantasy than science fiction. Um, a lot of the science fiction, uh, stuff in Star Wars is, is like set dressing. Um. Pretty much. Hyperspace and lightsabers and carbonite and. Yeah. Darth Vader. You have robots and spaceships and laser swords and blasters and all that. Uh, and then you have psychic space wizards. Yes, I agree. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, that's like my Star Wars is probably the most space opera I know I've watched. Now watched anything else that I can think of, but yeah, but I've watched Star Wars since I was like really small. I watched the prequels first, Ian. <laughs> oh. I grew up with those. <laughs> I grew up with the original trilogy. My parents did it right. My parents aren't nerds. <laughs> I mean, I, I first saw the original trilogy. It, it was the... wasn't It wasn't the, like, original cut original trilogy. It was, like, the uh, 90s really? revised version. Yeah. But I saw them for the first time on VHS. 
Um, for our listeners, uh, VHS <laughs> is an old video format where video was recorded onto magnetic tape cassette. I had uh, tapes when I was, like, really young. I don't think I saw them on VHS, although we did have VHS when I was a kid. Yeah, I had DVDs. Um, I think my parents probably sprung for the CDs. Yeah, I've, I've still got the DVDs behind me on my shelf. <laughs> oh yeah, DVDs, CDs, same difference. Wow. Very similar <laughs> technology, yes. Yes. Um, Discs, yeah. lasers, same difference. But yeah, I think space opera is really weird when you think about it as a title, because when we talk about, like, an opera, you know, with these, like, grand things, you know? When, when I think about the word opera, I think very, very grand, very sort of... That's really it. It's just, like, scale. Everything's huge. Everything must be, like, really high quality. You know? Do you, do you guys get the same from that word? And then you put space in front of it, and it's just like, okay, something really big in space. <laughs> I don't I don't necessarily associate the term opera with quality, but I do um ha it does it does carry a sense of large scale and a sense of grandeur to it. Yeah. I mean for me I have some pretty specific associations because the first time I came across the phrase space opera I mean, I, you know, I had loosely heard the word opera with, like, the fancy, weird European stuff that happens in theaters, but <laughs> I, I can hear the pain in both Ian and Dylan. When I first came across Space Opera, it was on the back of the cover of Leviathan Wakes, which is the first book in The Expanse. And it says on the back, of, as a review from, I don't know, some person... An excellent space operatic debut in the grand tradition of Peter F. Hamilton. Charles Strauss. I have no idea who either of those people are, even, you know, probably like five to ten years after first reading this. Oh, it's also on the cover. Um, <laughs> the front cover, as in, it's been too long since we've had a really kick-ass space opera, George R. R. Martin. At the time, I didn't know who that was. I do now. <laughs> Finish wins. For me, I have a lot of associations with the being a minor, uh, poor, and you're dealing with just a system that is structurally out to get you. And then you're dealing with threats that are greater than what anyone currently prepared. Any of the major factions are really prepared to deal with, and you have to pull everyone's bacon out of the fire. Huh, that's why I'm in such a Lancer kick lately. <laughs> uh, which, for those who don't know, Lancer is a sci-fi mech TTRPG, basically D&D 4th Edition with robots. Mm. And there's a lot of fun <laughs> stuff going on there. Plenty of horrifying implications. <laughs> uh, speaking of, you know, sort of space operas, Ian, this is probably something... I don't know how much Maya is into it, but Ian, you're surely in the uh, right age range to have had some Star Trek influence. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, Deep Space Nine is my jam. Um, mm -hmm. Although, 
the next generation is, is close behind that. Um, although those are the only two Star Trek series I've actually watched. Um, I think I've seen most of uh, the the movies that involve the original series characters, but mm-hmm. I've only seen like one or two original series episodes. I've seen the newer movies. I've actually not seen much Star Trek, despite my parents being pretty big Star Trek nerds. I've only ever... Uh, I've only ever seen Twitter clips and, like, YouTube clips, so... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. More than I, I you. Not, I am not an authority to speak on it. But it is, like... I don't know, maybe it's, like, a European thing. Because, obviously, I, d- I don't know how much Star Trek influences people over here compared to America. Since... Well, that was... It was you know, we only had four stations back in the day, and one of them was showing Star Trek. I don't think we got Star Trek shown over here until later on. Because we had Doctor Who instead. <laughs> we consider that space opera? Um, it's not much space. There's I some don't space. know that it would necessarily be a space opera. Uh... It has some of the elements of space opera, but it... I d- it doesn't have much space, as Dylan said. It's a sci-fi show. It is a sci-fi show, and there's a lot, and, there's, yeah. there's a lot of travel to other worlds and other places, and a lot of, you know, uh, exotic aliens and other exotic creatures. Um, there's not yes. really a single overarching villain to the story of Doctor Who. There's a lot of recurring villains. Yeah, um, you get like... Yeah, I, there's not... Yeah. Um, It's not a big single quest. Yeah, I haven't really kept up with, with Modern Who since, I think, the 14th Doctor. I think that's what they're on right now. <laughs> More recent oh. than me, Um, last time I actually watched Doctor Who, I was, like, nine... Not the Scottish Doctor, the one before him. Um, Matt Smith? Matt Smith, yes. Uh, Which one was he? Oh, he was 11? Oh, boy. Math Uh, is hard. 12 was Peter Capaldi, 13 was Jodie Whittaker, 14 is David Tennant again. Oh. (laughs) 15 is going to be the new guy, though. There's a weird storyline they're about to do. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I don't think any of us know, because... Neither Ian or I really watch it, evidently. <laughs> well, yeah, the quality went downhill uh, with 13. None of her fault. Bad, bad show direction. But anyway, uh, let's get out of space. Ian, take take me Ooh. to where, where I lie in the sun and can express all my thoughts. The, uh, you know, the place where I feel most comfortable. <laughs> in the next genre. I don't know where that would be. It says right there. <laughs> oh. Romance? Hmm. Yeah, baby. Now we're completely out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, there's um about one romance book I've read, and two more I've been pl- telling myself I'm going to read that will happen eventually, but still haven't even bought. 
okay, there are there are actually a couple of, of romance novels I've read and liked, but that's because they're T. T Kingfisher novels. So there's other things there that I like about them. Uh, th- there's other reasons you bought those books. Um, same here for me, pretty much. Uh, Riley Quinn's uh, The Fool of the Lover of the Devil is probably the only proper romance book I've read. Um, aside from maybe The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, but I was hoping for other things to happen. Nah, not really. And I was hoping for other things to happen in that book anyways. Uh, The Fool of the Lover of the Devil is probably the only one I actually read going in fully aware there was romance inside. Well, you'll be lucky to know the past week I've uh, been watching free romance anime. <laughs> Weeb. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm actually not that much of a weeb, but I love romance, and anime has a lot of it. <laughs> and I also just find, typically, they're better written <laughs> than... <laughs> yeah, what am I going to watch? How I, How I Met Your Mother? What? You tell me, Maya. What am I meant to watch from the West? <laughs> I don't watch shows. <laughs> so, yeah, obviously, uh, luckily for me, uh, Kaguya Summer Love is War had their uh, movie uh, come out on Crunchyroll, The First Kiss Never Ends, and that was very fantastic. Uh, as I, I speak about Kaguya Summer all the time, it's a, a romantic comedy about. Uh, the daughter of a huge conglomerate and this guy who works really hard to be top of all his studies and be the best student in school. Uh, they're both on the student council. He's the president, she's the vice president. They both like each other. Neither of them want to be the first one to confess. Love is war. <laughs> and it's all the situations just leading up to these two characters eventually confessing to each other. And it's great. You get two very <laughs> prideful individuals who, who want to make the other one confess first. Uh, the others that I've been watching, I watch Tomo Chan is a Girl, which is uh, a story about a very uh, masculine uh, high schooler. And she confesses her feelings to her best friend. Unfortunately, um, due to some confusion in their early life together as kids, he didn't recognize her as a girl for a long time. And it, and the story is about coming to grips with that. And obviously it leads to so many comedic moments, different characters. And, you know, we're about... What sort of masculinity, femininity, relationships between, you know, a masculine male and female, or a masculine uh, and f- male and a feminine female. Even uh, we have an example of, uh, in the story of a more feminine male and feminine female being together. And it's very interesting. We talk about gender roles and how that involves with romance and everything. And... You know, also, once again, pride getting in the way of stuff. And made-up rules in one's heads that affect romance. And the other one, which I have not finished, unlike the other two, where I'm fully caught up, read all of Kaguya manga, and watch all of uh, Tomo-chan, 
my roof, <laughs> my youth romantic comedy is wrong, as I expected. I just finished season one, and it's two pessimistic loners, and just their story. And the main character is so pessimistic and wanting to be a loner. It's painful. And I look at it and I go, oh no, he's like me for real, for real. (laughs) 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 But, uh, you know, it's a very good show. I hate watching it because, oh my god, me for real, for real. I'm just like, oh god, (laughs) this is hitting too close. But that's why, you know, I love romance because, you know, I get these characters like me, and obviously I didn't have those sort of experiences, but it shows, you know, it is wish fulfillment for me somewhat, and also just, they're very well written, and I enjoy them a lot. What about you guys? You guys... And, you know, I, I imagine it's more fan fiction for you two in terms of that. <laughs> um, yeah, fan fiction. Around when I realized I was trans, I went out and got a lot of lesbian literature <laughs> that I still haven't finished all of. Oops. <laughs> but most of what I did actually finish, the romance was not often the point it was just kind of something that happened or didn't happen sometimes Mm. so thank you Tamsin we're very cool (laughs) you got baited you've given me brain worms (laughs) (laughs) well yeah obviously romance is one of the biggest you know subplots subgenres even you know you find that romance is used in nearly everything to some level. Of course, it's never as dedicated or explored in everything, but it's always there, unlike most genres. You are come... It's hard to find... Often, it's hard to find a work that doesn't have any element at all. You can find them. It's a little difficult sometimes, even on some level, to find... I'm looking at two of them right in front of me. Oh yeah, the motion in Project Hail Mary. I They're sitting right in front of, those, of me. So your <laughs> point is invalid. <laughs> but it's very don't, difficult all the time don't to find that. Both of those stories mainly involve a protagonist that's more or less isolated. Yes. <laughs> your point. So I guess I guess the point then is that. Uh, if you want to write a story that's uh, completely full of romance, uh, free of romance, um, put a character in a box <laughs> and shoot him into space. Pretty much. That, that is one way to guarantee no romance will happen. <laughs> well, actually, I'm not even entirely certain about that for Project Hail Mary. I need to but, reread that. But yeah, I think about... All the animes I watch on some level, there's, you know, I look at My Hero. There's a very small romance subplot, you know, and it varies from things to things how much they put into the romance. Is it mostly background? Is it only occasionally brought up? Is it a constant? Is it, it fills a, a, a main arc? You know, everyone always is your entire main focus of the genre, you know. When you look at stuff like that, I feel like it's nearly everywhere. Of course, there are the exceptions. 
for the stories that are focused with all one character in a box. <laughs> but it's more romance is nearly in everything, but it's a slider that you move from one to a hundred. I feel. Don't don't you guys feel the same way? I we think think about any fantasy epic. It's like oh yeah, there is a little bit of romance in there. Of course, it's I mean it's on like five percent, but it's still there. I imagine it'd be nice to have more stuff where it's not really a big thing because of how overwhelmingly het and <laughs> poorly written a lot of it is. I mean, sure, it is the most written genre, I believe. Because... Probably. And that's the thing. when If you had a scale, Maya, and it was like, good to bad, and you have to pass a certain threshold. I imagine it would probably be the same as any genre. However, because there's more <laughs> romance than anything, perhaps it's just like a confirmation bias sort of thing, where because you see more bad, because there are more books. <laughs> As with anything, though, you know, you know, the, the genre of the, I don't know, a genre with two books and one book is good and one is bad would be the exact, you know, the exact same. Only 50% of the books are good, but there's only two of them, so. <laughs> it's probably the same with romance, you know, where they're probably hundreds of millions of romances or stories that significantly dedicate time to romance. And like 10 of them are good. No, probably about 50% are good or like 40 or, you know. Depends on well, how, I'm not how definitely not one to subscribe to Sturgeon's Law, especially in something that has its own pass through filters, <laughs> um, like the you know the fields of traditional publishing. I'm also just like vastly uninterested in almost all of what gets published as romance. <laughs> That's a more of a you thing, then, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I mean that is almost explicitly a me problem. <laughs> And what do you think? Uh, do you think we uh, have enough here? <laughs> yeah, I think this is probably plenty of content. You want to tell uh, tell us about the mailbag? Well, I don't think that we have any mail yet. So, if you want to reach out to us, uh, you can send us an email uh, to fanfictapes at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. Maya, what's our Twitter? At fanfiction tapes. I have it pulled up this time and I didn't get it wrong. Yay. You can't see me pumping my fist, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, please. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and we'd also love it if you would give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you listen to this show. Uh, do we have a prompt? Seemingly, we do. <laughs> yes. I, I wrote one just before missing the first half of the episode. That's those dolphins, man. <laughs> uh, anyway, the prompt for this week, for those of you interested in writing our little prompt, is write a short story in one of these three genres that we talked about today, urban fantasy, space opera, and romance, uh, with all, uh, and how that affects your world building. 
So I think we've hit our word count for today. Uh, I have been Ian, our producer, and today our main host. I have been Dylan, the co-host who was ya on time. <laughs> I have been Maya, the co-host who was not. Until next time, bye. Bye.